I have another confession that you probably are. This, you feel the same way, I'm sure. I don't mind brushing my teeth. I hate flossing. I don't like flossing. Does anyone like flossing? Teeth? No. Oh, like t- ten of you need help. My kids love flossing, and they don't realize it's just a lot of work to help you floss. But I don't. Uh, I like the benefits of flossing, but I don't like to like slow down enough to do it. And um, there's also a concept. If you translate that, there's a concept called like mental flossing and spiritual flossing. And basically, the idea behind that is there are, uh, I guess, you, there's like books, there's books of the Bible, there's prayers, there's like different things you could do on kind of routine on some schedule that basically acts as mental or spiritual floss to just get like some of the gunk that builds up in our spiritual lives and in our mental lives and in our soul. Um, there's a couple of books that I just, they're so small. I, just, I read them every year just because they're like mental floss. It just reminds me of these great things. Um, in the Bible, there's several passages of Scripture that pack a consistent and powerful punch when we read them. Um, the book of Proverbs is like one of these mental, spiritual floss books. You know, there's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. There's generally 31 days-ish in most months. just kind of makes sense. You just read whatever the date is. Today's, what, the 19th? So you'd read Proverbs chapter what? 19, it's just, you're so smart. Just mental and spiritual floss. Uh, the Psalms are those. The Gospels are those. Ephesians is my favorite letter or epistle. And there's like six chapters in Ephesians, but it just applies to almost every part of our life. I, I'm always reading Ephesians. The Sermon on the Mount. If you, could, uh, if you were like exiled to an island, and before they exiled you, they said you could have three chapters of the Bible. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 should be your answer. The Sermon on the Mount is one of those sections in the scriptures that's just... It's it floss for everything. The Beatitudes, Matthew 5, right in there at the beginning. Luke 15 is another chapter. It's just um, Jesus is telling the religious leaders um, how God views the lost. They viewed the lost as a nuisance and something to stay away, people to stay away from. And in Luke 15, Jesus gives us probably the greatest picture of God's heart, uh, the, the parable of the lost shepherd, the lost coin, and the lost son, that trilogy or that triptych of God's heart people who have run away or who have fallen away. Um, that's one of those chapters we should constantly read to remind ourselves of God's heart. Matthew 22. You know what's in Matthew 22? You know Matthew 22? The great commandments. Love the Lord with everything you got and love your neighbor as yourself. That's another, you should write down Matthew 22 and work that into your flossing routine. We're going to look at today one of those types of passages and it's Matthew 28. It's a chapter every time I read it, a section, it's like three verses. Every time I read it, I get convicted. And it's one of those things that always brings me back to the shore. It always brings me back. Sometimes you get on a boat on a lake and you just kind of drift and waves you know, push you out and you got to come back to um, where you're at. So Matthew 28 is an anchor for me. I think it should be an anchor for you. It should be an anchor for every church. It's certainly the anchor of this church. And so if you have a Bible, let's go to Matthew 28. Um, We'll start in verse 16, and uh, you can use one of the Bibles around you. If you pick the hard black Bible up, it's page 835. Um, If you're joining us uh, this uh, season of Easter, we've been going through the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus and just kind of unpacking them. They all take place at a particular place with a particular person. And so the first one was in a garden with Mary. Then the next one was, I think, on a road with Cleopas. 
um, behind locked doors with disciples. And today, the setting is on a mountain, which I'd love to be at right now, and with the disciples. So we're going to read, I think it's just uh, a couple of verses. Let's start in verse 16. And I think, pretty sure, yeah, this is the end of Matthew. This is how it ends for him. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is literally the words of our Lord. There you go. Yeah. Just so you know, anytime says that, you say thanks be to God. It's <laughs> really what you do. It's like when someone says, in Jesus' name we pray, you say, amen. When someone says, uh, this is the word of the Lord, you say, thanks be to God. Call, call and response. It's great. All right. So I want to uh, throw up verse 18 and just kind of highlight a few things in verse 18. Um, I want to f- first focus on Jesus comes to them, and he's been preparing his disciples for his uh, ascension, and he gives them some orders. And he says, all authority uh, in heaven, which is a great phrase, and on earth. Uh, you could literally go off into the woods and just ponder, what does it mean in heaven and on earth? Uh, why doesn't he say on heaven? He says in heaven. Because heaven is this... Um, it's another realm. So he says, in heaven, but on this place called earth. We'll talk about that in a few more weeks. But um, all, all authority. Okay, have you ever, um, you ever seen like CSI or NCIS or some crime drama show? I don't know, there's like a, a dime, there are a dime a dozen now. And, and generally, sometimes uh, the drama, sometimes in these crime drama shows, is that a crime happens and then like the local sheriff shows up and they start taking fingerprints. They scan the fingerprint and the FBI has that fingerprint flagged, and all of a sudden, like, the FBI shows up, and they say, we're going to take all this evidence and go, and the local authorities are left going, well, but we haven't solved this case, whatever. And the FBI will come in and uh, pull rank and say, uh, this is, you know, you're out of your jurisdiction on this case, and we can't share you the details. You just need to trust that we're taking all this evidence. You know, you've seen that in a show. Sometimes you get like the Department of Defense and then the FBI and then the CIA shows up. You get all these various authorities at various different levels fighting for jurisdiction. And that sometimes is the plot of these uh, Jerry Bruckheimer shows that make a lot of money that keep going on for like 20 seasons. Here's the deal. Jesus says all authority. Jesus doesn't play that game with anybody. What Jesus is saying on the mountain to disciples is saying he doesn't share jurisdiction with anybody. He's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. Like the buck stops with him. He's the one in charge. And so there's not like there's these, it's not like someone else is going to come in and go, oh, you know, Jesus said to do that, but we're going to tell you to do something else. No, he said all, not mostly, not 80%, all authority. That's a big thing I just want you to, I want to land with you is that when, when King Jesus shows up. He's not sharing jurisdiction with anybody. That's not how this thing works, okay? Uh, the, the other thing I want to note is uh, he's King Jesus. Uh, it's a kingdom. 
It's, it's a kingdom of heaven. Our challenge is we live in a democracy. You know, I mean, we don't like kings so much. We like went very, very far on the other side of the pond to say, like, we, we dislike kings so much, we're going to get on a boat and go very, very, very far and start something completely different. That's how much we as Americans don't like kingdoms and how much we don't like rules. And we just got to acknowledge that like, there's a lot of history in us for good or bad when it comes to king. We, uh, he's not President Jesus who like takes a consensus and says, we got a supermajority. All right, now we know which way we're going to go. He didn't do that. It's the kingdom of heaven, right? And so, uh, you know, democracies work on the basis of consensus. And we don't even, like that consensus doesn't even last for four years. You know, we don't even like the people we elect, usually. So you get that, right? Like, democracies work by us coming together and go, we think this one, right? Kingdoms don't work that way. Kingdoms work on the basis of authority. That's just the way kingdoms work, whether you like it or not. That's how kingdoms work. The currency for kingdoms is authority. And so Jesus, in his kingdom of heaven, says, all authority has, in heaven and on earth has been given to me, dot, dot, dot. Now, does it even matter what he says next? If he's actually the king, if he's actually the Lord, I mean, if he's not lying here, you may say, Jesus, I think you're lying. Okay, or he's a lunatic. Okay, but if he's actually the Lord, as C.S. Lewis kind of points out, then whatever he says next, if he's actually the king and all authority has been given to him, it really doesn't matter what's on the other side of those three dots. We would just do it because I'm not the king, you're not the king, and there's no like electoral college to vote. Okay, you get it? You track with me? If he said, go make sandcastles, you know what we'd be talking about right now? We'd be like talking about starting a church on the beach. Some of you are like, heaven, <laughs> you know? We'd have like, uh, san, uh, you know, uh, lo- suntan lotion. We'd be talking about how to make sandcastles most effectively and most beautifully. And we'd, I'd, I'd have like a pail and a shovel up here. And we'd be talking about not getting the sand in your eyes. Because if the king says, go make sandcastles, that's what we would do. Because he's the king, right? Well, it, what did you say? Verse 19. Uh, and 20, I think. He says... And I want to highlight these four action words. Go, make, baptize, teach. So he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to do four things. I want you to get off your butts and do four things. Go, make something. We'll get into what disciples means. Of all nations, I love this. He doesn't say, go make disciples of people that look like you. Like all people, all colors, all cultures, all places, all geographies, this gospel, this good news is for everybody of every class. So good. Go, make, baptize. We're going to talk about that. Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then this last part kind of gets left off because we often say, go make disciples, go make disciples. Uh, Teaching them. They're very important. And that's what we're doing now teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, this is so great, I am with you always to the end of the age. So sometimes when we talk about the Great Commission, someone um, will push back and go, oh, that's nice, Drew. Uh, You missed it. Jesus is talking to the capital D disciples, not the lowercase d disciples. And I'm like, well, did you see the last line there? He says, to the end of the age. I'm not sure that lets us out of it. Because we haven't come to the exact end of the age yet. We think we're at the end, but 
He says, I'll be with you. No, what's, what's really cool, in the King James, uh, I think it's the King James, it says, instead of saying, and behold, it says, and lo. I know we don't talk like that, right? But there's this like cute little quote. It, you know, starts off, the King James starts off, go, and then it ends with, and lo, I'll be with you. And so some people say, there is no lo without the go. Like if you want Jesus, you got to go. Uh, sometimes as a pastor, people will come to me and they'll, they'll say something along the lines of, hey, I just don't feel God's presence anymore. And in my pastoral dashboard that I have, there's like all these like checkpoints to go, all right, well, what is it? Is it unconfessed sin? Is it unforgiveness? Um, you know, whatever. Like, it could be a many things. One of those things I always check on is the Great Commission. Because sometimes, many times, I'll say, okay, you don't feel, Jesus says, I'll be with you. In the low, I am with you always. And if you don't feel or even sense that he's with you, I'll sometimes say, hey, tell me about how you're walking in the great commission. And if there's deer in the headlights, I know I've struck a note. Because there is no low without the go. If you go, if you make, if you baptize and you teach, it will not be easy but you will experience the presence of Jesus. You will see signs and wonders along the way. It just, it is what it is. So that's not even my notes. Praise God. Hope you like that. All right. What does it mean to go? Uh, I would say uh, what this, two, these two letters are really important because it tells us we are a sent people. He says go. John's version, John 20, 21, I think, uh, um, Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you, and he breathes on the Holy Spirit and says, go and distribute forgiveness, basically. It's my paraphrase. And so just as, if you're a believer in Christ, uh, you just have to come to terms with, we are a sent people. Now, most of us believe that we are American citizens who are consumers chasing personal happiness by achieving the American dream. Which is, an, which is an, the American pipe dream. Okay? You are not, theologically, you are not an American citizen who's a consumer chastening the personal happiness of the American pipe dream. You are first a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and the king has sent you to America to be a missionary and a representative and an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven. This is why the beginning of the Lord's Prayer is, after our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Uh, one of our first thrusts after wanting the Father's name to be hallowed or respected or revered or worshipped is that his kingdom in heaven would come here. This is part of our calling, is to bring the kingdom wherever we go. But most Christians, most churches are organized around this, is it's all about kind of consumerism and in your experience, and your happiness, and, and come here, and we're going to give you a great experience. The Great Commission is go. We are sent people. Now, uh, this, just briefly about the pipe dream, about the American dream. Um, I've not met anybody who has the American dream who is still happy. I know a guy, I'll, I'm going to leave him, I'm going to leave his name out, but if I said his last name, you would know it, and you have um, purchased his product. Got a Worldwide business. His last name is, I drove by yesterday and saw his last name. I know the guy. And I ran into him at a conference, and um, 
a couple years ago. I didn't, I didn't know who he was. He, he, I was going to my room. He walked up, and he's like, hey, do you want to have a whiskey? And I was like, I'll have a Dr. Pepper. <laughs> and so I sat down at this bar at this conference that I was emceeing, and he was drinking whiskey, and I was drinking Dr. Pepper. And I had no idea. I had to ask after he left. I was like, who is that guy? And someone told me, he's like, oh, my goodness. I had no clue, right? So we became friends that day. He owns three million-dollar houses in the three most expensive zip codes, one in California, one in Colorado, one in Florida. He's got his own plane. He's got his own pilot. When he wants to go somewhere, he doesn't go through TSA like all of us. He just tells the pilot, here's where I want to go. And he just goes to his plane, and they go. And it's not a plane. It's a jet. I'm sorry. Misspoke. Not a, it's like a private jet, right? And this guy is, is like insanely wealthy, okay? Like, we're never going to have our own planes or jets, right? And he, when he wants to go somewhere, he just tells the guy, this is where I want to go, and they just go, right? And having whiskey and Dr. Pepper with this guy, he's fired up. He's like probably in his 70s. And he's like, Drew, we have to make disciples. This is where fulfillment is. And this, I mean, this guy, like we had this entire conversation, and he's telling me, it doesn't matter how many houses you have. It doesn't matter how many planes you have or if you have a jet. Fulfillment is not in that. Fulfillment is in going and making and baptizing and teaching. And I'm like, I, he's got it. And he, he's got everything most of us dream about having one day. And he still, he still says Matthew 28 is where it's at. So I, I want to offer that, uh, that illustration to you. That if you have gotten in this place where, where you think... Um, if you just have the right house, or you have the right job, or you have the right spouse, or you have the right children, or you have the right clothes, or you have the right bank account, or you have the right number, what are the, listen, that's just a, a dream that is never fulfilled. Like, like, the houses keep getting bigger, the children keep getting, you're like, well, that, that child, I need a different type of child. Like, uh, the, the clothes, you just keep buying more expensive clothes and it still doesn't touch the deep places inside your soul. You, you go from it, you go to a different neighborhood and you realize that neighborhood has problems too. You get the point here. It is, if you are on that chase of the American dream, I'm just telling you, you're never going to find the end of that rainbow. And there ain't a pot of gold there. It's a fairy tale. And I personally know people who have more of the American dream than we will ever have and they would still say, it's not enough. Being obedient to God and being on his mission is where true, deep fulfillment and purpose is. Where is your mission field? Right? We are not consumers in America. We are missionaries to America. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, fundamental, first, you might be an American citizen, but first you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, sent to be an ambassador to America. We all have a mission field. There's a, great, uh, there's a great little quote that says, you don't become a missionary by crossing the sea. Because a lot of people think you become a missionary by going to Africa. You become a missionary by seeing the cross. Just let that sink in. All you have to do to become a missionary is to see the reality of the cross and be changed by it. And then probably cross the street. You know, you don't have to cross the sea, you can just cross the street. Or go down the hallway to your bedroom where your kids sleep. Or go to work. Your mission field is where your feet are. Uh, I, f I forget the, um, 
I didn't look for it, and I struggle with like memory sometimes. Um, and I, so I forget the, the the chapter in Psalms. Uh, so I'll just you know you can Google it, right? But it's uh, God delights in the details of your life. Like you know, He goes before you, He goes behind you, lays His hand and blessing on you. He He just uh, God takes delight in working out the details of your life. Which, if that psalm is true, what that tells me is that where you live is not an accident. God put you there for a very specific reason. Where you work is not an accident. Whether you love or hate your job, you're there for a reason. If you're still there, you're there for a reason. The family that you're in, you're not in, in that family for an accident, right? So your mission field is wherever your feet are. Wherever your feet take you, that's your mission field. Um, one of the great mission fields that I have is my two children. Shari and I, like, there's no use um, making an impact in Africa or making an impact in San Antonio or making an impact in this church if we first can't make disciples of the two little boys in our house. My first church plant, my first mission field is Hayden and Grayson. Right? Like, it glorifies God it does not glorify God if we have a great church and my kids hate Jesus. It doesn't glorify God, right? And so my first mission field sleeps right down the hallway. Uh, and I, we, we don't get it right all the time, right? But I, if I could share uh, one success story, um, and not, not to go, oh, we're doing it, we're not killing it. Like, man, I got angry with them this morning, so let's, let's just like... But the other day... Um, uh, for a couple months, we've been allowing our kids in here during worship. And it's sometimes a hot mess. And there's like lots of wiggles. And sometimes like I can't even like, inter- I can't even worship because like my kids are running around. And, and that's just the way it is, okay? But we believe that even in those imperfect moments of our kids wiggling and, and like not sitting still and being quiet, God's doing something. The other day, uh, maybe like two or three weeks ago, Monday's my Sabbath, my day off, and I was in the garage doing something, and Grayson was in there. Grayson's four, can barely go to the bathroom without diapers. It's amazing, but that's where he's at. Like, we just got out of diapers. We're in the promised land, okay? And uh, he's in the garage with me playing with his, like, dump truck, whatever. And on the, from the other end of the garage, I hear him singing, God is so good, is so good to me. And he's just playing by himself with dirt, singing to himself, to God, that God is so good. And uh, we, the song, we, we were playing it, to, we sung it today, and his eyes light up, and he knew the song, and he's like wiggling and sharp, but he's singing it, right? And I thought in that moment, yes, that is making disciples, because my four-year-old son is singing that God is so good, right? So great. So, when we, uh, as a church, when we allow our kids in here, part of that is, like, you don't get to see that in the garage. You don't get to see when our kids are like, can we sing Raise a Hallelujah? You know, and like, they, they're, they're singing that. You know, just hopefully they don't sing that. So like, one day they're going to go, fear can go to hell. And I'll be like, okay, we're going to have to like, <laughs> walk this one back. <laughs> I still like that song. That's a good song. All right, we'll move on. Uh, make, two, make. Uh, um, go make. So go as we are sent people, make as we are producing people. I'm a millennial. I was born in the 80s. And our generation gets trashed, mostly for good reason, because many of us are entitled and lazy and need to grow up and need to realize we can't win everything, right? So, but 
the great hope I have in our generation is we are a do-it-yourself generation. Like most of the people in my generation, most of them, are like proficient in YouTube and Pinterest. Like we can make something. Like we are a making generation. And this gives me hope because the Great Commission speaks right to that, right? Um, we are not called to just come and consume something. We are called to make something. We are a producing people. God is a maker. Uh, he, he makes trees. He makes forests and says, you make the table. So great. He puts fish on the earth and he goes, you make sushi. It's great. God's a maker, but then he calls us into making with him. We are making people. Um, and, and many times, even like honestly, as a church, as a pastor, um, you know, I was trained to prey upon the, the consumeristic tendencies of people, which is ba- like, literally, I was told, if, if, uh, if you preach sermon series that are four weeks or shorter, if, if your kids' ministry is just a little bit better than the guy down the street, and if you have a worship leader with skinny jeans and you have a decent graphic designer, you can grow a church. And like, that's literally a book. And, and, and churches and pastors are taught how to prey upon consumeristic tendencies. The Great Commission is like, no, no, no. Don't go create consumers. Make disciples. Very, very different. Um, and I think we as a church, we get this. We get this. The third thing, baptize. We are an immersing people. Okay? Uh, baptize in the ancient world was not primarily a religious word. We use the word baptism, and even if you're uh, like de-churched or like never been in church, you know that the word baptism is synonymous with religion. But in the ancient world, that the word the word baptizo uh, was not primarily associated with church or religion or God. It was associated with sailors. When a wooden ship would sink, and when it would get immersed in water when it would get overwhelmed with water to the point where the entire life of the ship was submerged, the, ship, the, the sailors would say, that ship was baptized. That ship was overwhelmed. That ship was immersed. It's a, baptism is a nautical term. It's not a religious term. And, when, um, and you know, there was uh, some few instances of baptism in the Old Testament, but primarily this is a word that sailors used, not primarily a word that priest used. And so when we talk about baptism, we're not primarily talking about do we sprinkle someone with water or do we fully dunk them in a tank? We're talking about have they been overwhelmed with the character of the Father, with the character of the Son, with the character of the Spirit? Have, ha- have they immersed completely in the life of God to the full? And when um, you're in a religious service and somebody um, is either immersed completely or splashed, whatever, the mode isn't important. What's important is what the mode is pointing to, which is someone saying, I've sunk my ship in Jesus. I want the Father, Son, and Spirit to overwhelm me to where the only thing, the, the dominating force in my life is the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's what it means to baptize to overwhelm someone with the presence of God. Now, um, y- yesterday, um, I was home, and Shari and Grayson were at a birthday party, and, and uh, me and Hayden were home. 
and we get a, a, door, a, a doorbell rings. I'm like, I don't know. I'm not expecting. I thought maybe it was a FedEx guy, and like someone's just standing at my door. So I go, and it was a, a friend. And he, he, he was going on a walk, and um, his little girl just wanted to come say hi. Just as a girl. Okay, they'd never done this, ever. We're talking, and all of a sudden, he starts crying. And he shares his heart and tells me some bad news that he's recently heard. And I've never told my pastor. And he, he's like, I don't know why I'm crying. I don't know why I'm telling you this. And, and uh, back when I had him like, it happens a lot, you know, like, <laughs> like it's uh, the calling of God in my life tends to, this is what happens, you know, it's not me, it's just, and uh, he's, uh, he, he's like, will you pray for me? And I was like, sure. And uh, uh, Bishop Sandy rode by on his motorcycle, I was like, oh, buddy, <laughs> this guy has no clue. <laughs> he has no clue what's about to happen, you know, and uh, Bishop Sandy walks up. And like, you were going on a walk, and suddenly, like, a bishop and a priest are about to pray for you, and you did not know that, <laughs> right? Not that that mattered, but, and so I, I just, uh, I didn't even put my hand on it. I just said, hey, let's pray. And uh, kids are there, and I just, I don't know, like, I don't even know what I prayed. I just prayed. And uh, he, he started, he'd cry more, and he's like, man, I felt that. And uh, I walked away, and I felt the Lord say, Drew, that's what it means to baptize people. I just came to our door. He's having a bad day. Had a beer in his hand. Choice words are coming out of his mouth. We've never talked about Jesus. And he just, out, he, he asked me to pray for him. I didn't even ask. He was like, will you pray for me? I was like, okay. Prayed for him. He's crying again. Sent me a text this morning. Sent me a text last night. Walked by this morning. Still. Uh, talked to him this morning. And I just felt like the Lord say, that's what it means to baptize people in the Father, in the Son, in the Spirit. And when we do that with water occasionally, that's all we're pointing to. Now, here's the deal. Like, I'm not some super Christian that has, like, God's calling all of us to live lives like that, where we are so in tune with his presence that when a stranger comes by, we just have eyes to go, Lord, how do you want me to go? How do you want me to make? How do you want me to baptize this person? How do you want me to teach them the ways of Jesus? It's, 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 it's pretty easy. We don't need programs necessarily. Those can help. We don't need studies necessarily, but those can help. You know, we do gospel communities. We do church services. It's meant to help. But the, the end goal is that you could be on a walk, or you could be on your porch, and you could go make, baptize, and teach, and it not even feel like work or effort or striving because God, his power is just there. Because the king has said, this is what I want you to do. Where you're living, just open your eyes to where you're living. Just open your eyes to where you're living. Where you work, just open your eyes. And God will do those things. That's crazy. All, all I have to do is just be surrendered to it. Like, I, didn't, I didn't manufacture that. It's so great. I want more of that. I'm like, Lord, this is great. Like, I want more of this. But it's great. You can do that 10 times more than me. Because you're around people far from God way more than me. You spend 40, 50 hours around people far from God more than I do, you know? Teach. 
We are a learning people. Go make, baptize, teach. Um, Jesus came as a maker, as a stonemason, as a carpenter. The Greek word is tekton. And he also came as a teacher, as a rabbi. And this is the part we often leave off. Um, we go make disciples, baptize, and we, sometimes we'll, we'll just forget, oh, we're supposed to teach people the ways of Jesus. So uh, I want to double back and just give, uh, I want to give you three definitions of what it means to be a disciple. Because the, kind of the, the, the thrust of all this is making disciples of Jesus. And, the, and we use the word disciple a lot. And, some, and one of the unfortunate consequences of using the word disciple a lot is that you, someone can say disciple and you're like, I'm not sure what you're talking about. And sometimes we talk about disciples but we're talking about it from different dictionaries. We're using the same word, but different dictionaries. So I, I wanted to, uh, even as a pastor, I'd be like, man, 10 years ago, I was like, I don't even know what a disciple means. I'm a pastor, right? So I want to give you a couple of definitions that help me. The first one, just straight up, is uh, the, the definition of disciple is learner. The Greek word uh, matateus just means learner. That's it. That's like the kindergarten definition is to be a disciple, to make disciples, is to learn. Um, but it goes beyond information and being able to regurgitate facts, which I think is sometimes our American Western tendency is we believe uh, that if you can remember something, you've learned it. And it's very possible to regurgitate information about something in your head, but actually not be able to practice it, which is like the world's chief complaint against Christians is that they're hypocrites, that they believe something they can't do, right? Because we're not, we've stopped, many people have stopped at the level of just intellectual discipleship but their heart hasn't been discipled. Their life, their hands haven't been discipled. So we need to go past this. The, this, this is a, the second definition is my favorite definition. Uh, it comes from a guy by the name of Jim Putnam who wrote a book on this. And um, uh, Jim uh, has this way of saying the definition of discipleship is found in the invitation. In Matthew 4, verse 19, the, the, the famous call to discipleship or the invitation to be a disciple, Jesus is walking along the shore and he says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, okay? So this is my favorite definition because the definition is in there. There's three things. Um, there's come follow, there's I'll make you, and then there's fishers of men, three things. So just straight up, a disciple is someone who follows Jesus. Come follow me. So if you're not following Jesus, well, just you're not a disciple. You got to follow him. He says, I'll make you into something. And so you can't, it's not just enough to follow. You got to be changed by him. And so a disciple is someone who follows Jesus, who is second being changed by him. But the third, which is sometimes where the drops off, is that a disciple is someone who's committed to Jesus' mission. Okay? So this is my favorite definition of discipleship that's inherent in Jesus' invitation. So to be a full-on follower of Jesus you need to follow him and not just flirt with him or not just like the idea of him. You actually, he's got to be Lord. He's got to be the leader. You got to follow his lead. You have to allow him to change you. Someone asked me one time, like, is it a sin to smoke? And I said, I don't know, but the longer you spend time with Jesus, the things that need to fall off will fall off. And if you spend time with Jesus and allow him to change you, if you need, like, if you need to stop smoking or stop drinking or stop cussing or whatever, It'll just fall off you because it'll be Jesus changing you. And uh, that, that, 
this one person uh, smoked their entire life. I think it was like 40 years smoked since they were like 16. And like one day just lost the craving, cold turkey. No gum, no patch, no, just like they're just, I'm going to spend time with Jesus. And for, for that person, Jesus changed them. The third thing is, uh, are you committed to his mission? This kind of goes back to we're not, we're sent people. Now, what's his mission? Just quickly, in Luke 19.10, Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and save the law. Okay, well, that's, add Luke 19.10 to your floss list, okay? Luke 19.10, Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. That's why he told Luke 15, right? And so, uh, um, I'd say a, a disciple, someone who follows Jesus, is changed by him and is committed to his mission to seek and save the lost. Now, the third, I want to add just a third one on there because sometimes these things are multifaceted. Um, this is from Mike Breen. A, a disciple is someone who has the character of Jesus and has the competency of Jesus. Whereas the first definition I gave you, learner, we Americans can come, sometimes think it's all about the head knowledge. This emphasizes the heart, character, and the competency, the hands. So you can work out a grid of head, heart, hands. Like, you, like is Jesus changing your head? Is he changing your heart? Changing your, your hands or your character, your competency. So um, the more you follow Jesus, the more his character, you'll have his character, and the more you'll be able to do the things Jesus does, right? Which primarily is like bring healing and breakthrough to people. Um, like God wants to train your hands to where if someone stops by your house, you don't have to call me. You could just pray with them. That's doing the things Jesus said, right? It's totally available to you. All right, now, this is the point of the sermon where I'm supposed to drop a guilt trip on you and like talk about and highlight all the ways in which you're not making disciples. And, and if you uh, will join this thing and do this thing or come to this training, we're going to turn you into a maker. Yeah, is that what you want? Is that what you feel? Yeah, okay. Great, because that's not what I prepared. Um, I think my hypothesis is if you just focus on being a disciple of Jesus, the making disciples of others, the, the making and helping other people follow Jesus will just be a natural byproduct, right? So instead of picking off bad fruit off the tree, I'm just going to, I want to address the root, which is how is Jesus calling you to become more of a disciple of him? And he's calling all of us to become more disciples of him. And if, if, I think if we could turn our attention to Jesus, how can I follow you more? How can I be changed by you more? How can I be committed to your mission more? then the going, making, baptized teaching will just happen as a natural result. And it'll be like not because of anything you did or not because of anything I did, but because of the power of God working through you. Because ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit's job to make disciples. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict people. It's the Holy Spirit's job to save people, not ours. Okay? So I want to uh, just uh, throw up some questions for you. And you might write these down. You might take a picture of this. This might be some homework for the next year. Is first, um, do you get a sense of how Jesus is calling you to become a fully committed and faithful disciple of him? Not of me, not of a church, not of a denomination, not of a religion, but of him. These are disciples of Jesus we want to make. Uh, Some of you here... um, you're in the flirt stage. Like you're not really following. And for some of you, this is, your, this is your opportunity to stop flirting with Jesus and start following him and get serious. 
Uh, some of you may be following, but you're at a distance. Like, you don't pray every day. You don't, you don't pray in the morning. You don't pray at noontime. You don't pray on your way home. You don't open the scriptures regularly and commune with the word. You're not in community with others. Uh, you would say you're following Jesus, but it, there's, a long, there's a long distance in between you. You're, you're not in a flirting relationship. You're in a long-distance relationship. And how might Jesus be calling you to come closer to him? Uh, are you falling close, but you've grown comfortable? But at the end of the day, what I want you to consider is how can you just turn it up a little bit with Jesus between you and him? And the rest of the Great Commission will work itself out, I think. And if you're here and you're like, no, Drew, I need, I need the guilt trip and I need the, like, the foot in the back, come talk to me. Happy to do that. But I think this is the starting place. It's like, Lord, what are you saying to me? And then we just be obedient to that, and it, it unfolds. Okay? And if you need help along the way, we're here. That's our job. But uh, today, no guilt trip. You're welcome. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, our Abba, our Daddy, we just first recognize you are God and we aren't. And many times our American culture can lure us into accepting a lesser story and a lesser calling. God, and what we need is your help to turn our eyes upon you. We need your help to cause the things of this world to grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. So we turn our attention to you, Lord. And we ask that you'd help us to say yes to being a disciple of you. But I've been following you my entire life. But I know you're still calling me to drop nets and to follow you closer. And I, Lord, I pray for those here who are uh, flirting or following at a distance, that, that your Holy Spirit would surround them right now and that, that they would hear and see and feel the blessing of your gracious presence inviting them to a holiday and an adventure that far outweighs the American pipe dream. And, and, and happiness that is based on earthly circumstances that are so fickle. Jesus, we thank you that all authority is yours. We need you so much, God.